Perhaps you've uh, heard back in World War II, one of the forms of torture that the Nazis would do to their Jewish prisoners would be uh, to give them meaningless tasks to do, to torment them. One in particular was to move a pile of sand from one end of a compound to the other end. It was driving people mad. Social scientists will say that the greatest threat to our humanity is meaninglessness, not having a meaning, a purpose, value. Ecclesiastes is a a book of wisdom. It's part of the wisdom literature of Job's and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Uh, The wisdom literature is is God giving us his wisdom that we might be able to live fulfilled, fruitful, and joy-filled lives. Uh, This book in particular um, is at the heart of the Bible. It's right in the center for us to gain from God. Um, it predates, this ancient wisdom actually predates the wisdom of the philosophical, giant, the philosophical giants of Aristotle and Plato. Um, it, it's, it's a bit of a challenge to read. It can be somber. It can be perhaps even a little bit dark. Carol read it about three weeks ago and her quick take on the book was, wow, that is depressing. And, and it, it, can be, it can be dark. It has very uh, dark sayings in it. Um, it. It kind of rambles. It, it's not neat like a math problem that ties up nice at the end. It kind of rambles and, and wanders a bit, but, but so does life, and that's kind of the point. The structure of the book itself is that there's a brief um, prologue, as Joy read, the first 11 verses, And there's a a brief epilogue at the end, the second half of chapter 12. But but the the book itself is really just a monologue. It's a preacher speaking about his search for the meaning of life. That's the bulk of the book. Now, the preacher isn't identified. He's described. He's the son of David, and he's the king of Jerusalem. Now, traditionally, people would see that as Solomon, and for obvious reasons. We don't know that it was. Solomon's other writings, he identifies himself as the author. Here he doesn't. Language may not be so Solomonic either, and so many people think it was compiled after Solomon. But Solomon's used, all agree that Solomon is used as an example in this book, as one who is searching for meaning, but coming up empty. This is really the message of the book. The message of the book is... Everything is vanity. Now the word vanity, it's a a desperate little word. It means vapor, puff of wind, smoke, pointless. It's it's like that little little wind that just, you see it and then it's gone. A little puff of smoke, all it is. It's used five times in verse 2 alone, 35 times in the book. You see in the third verse that question, what does it profit? a man for which he toils under the sun. What does it profit him? And what's the answer? It's meaninglessness. I mean, Ecclesiastes, the word itself means preacher. So this is a sermon. He's sermonizing to us. Now, he begins with the end, is the irony of it. He begins with, what is the purpose of life? It's meaningless. I mean, 
he's breaking all the, the homily rules. You, you know, when you take these classes and preaching sermon, you want to try to hold the tension as long as you can, and he just blows right through that. He tells us the, the end right at the beginning. Everything is meaningless. Meaningless when it's done apart from God. In other words, you know, when you live your life without any reference to God, when you're making decisions day in and day out without giving thought to God, that, that that will lead to a meaningless life. You know, when you live your life just based on the experiences that you have or the experiences that you want or the wisdom from someone else having experiences, but, but you're not consulting God, you're not seeking God, you're not, you're not appealing to what God has said on something, you're living without God and it leads to a meaningless life, a pointless life. It's, it's like, before I shared with you that it's kind of described like living in a house without any skylights, right? You only know what you can see through the windows. And you can see some things about creation, no doubt, but, but you can't understand life. I mean, skylights let you see into the heavens. They let you see the stars that are well beyond your reach, well beyond your understanding, well beyond your comprehension. And it just begs you to understand that there are things beyond you. It leads you to transcendence. And life lived, toiling under the sun, is a life with no transcendence. It's a material life. It's a natural life. And this leads, as he said, to meaninglessness. So it's really this sermon, if you will, this book, is really a testimony of one man's attempt to find meaning. And he's trying to do it. He's a religious man, but he's not living as if God were sovereign over all the affairs of his life. In fact, it's really, if you will, and I'll get to this later at the end of the sermon, the book itself is really an explanation of Genesis 3. Here's what life is like in a world racked with sin if you don't involve God. He says, everything is meaningless. Well, what is everything? Well, let me explain, because if, when you read through the book, you're going to look at four big categories of life that he sought, or avenues of meaning that he sought. Uh, the, the first thing that you'll see in terms of his pursuit of meaning apart from God, the first thing was wisdom that this preacher, or Solomon, let's say, sought wisdom. He wanted to gain wisdom. He says that in the 13th verse. He says, I devoted myself to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. So Solomon, let's just say, sought wisdom diligently. And he gained it. We know he was the smartest of all men. People around the world came to hear his wisdom. He gained wisdom in large measure. But here's what he says about it. He says, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for which much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. In other words, the more he learned, the more he realized he didn't know, and it led to greater grief. How many of you think that given enough time, given enough wisdom, given enough experience, that we'll be able to solve the world's problems? that we'll be able to right the struggles with the world? Or how many of you think that, that if I go to this college and I get these grades and I attain this academic performance, that then I will be able to be in a place to have meaning and value in life? Or if I read this book, 
this book on marriage or this book on parenting, then I will be satisfied and happy and, and this will lead me. How many of you think that way? Solomon will even say in chapter 12, he says, of the writing of books there is no end and in the study there is much weariness. You know, there's an example. Karen Ying was a student in California who was unique. She was known as the Wonder Woman in her high school. So brilliant, so, so um, intellectually strong. She could read things and just retain them. She scored a 1600 on her SATs. Now that's not totally unusual. A number of people have done that. But she also scored an 800 on this, this standardized testing for California, which is a rigorous test. No one had ever done both. Scored perfect on both tests. So obviously, she, all the doors of the universities were open to her. But in one interview, she was asked an interesting question by the reporter who said, what do you think the purpose of life is? And her answer was, I have no idea. I would love to know. Now, this is a brilliant young woman, but she has no idea of why she exists, why she's here. So it's not just the purpose, it's not just wisdom that Solomon pursued to find meaning and value and security, uh, but another path that he pursued was career, accomplishments. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. In other words, when you look at Solomon's life, he was an effective builder. I mean, he built the temple. He built a palace. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. I mean, I mean, he was a man that was accomplished at many, many levels. But here's what he says when he reviews all the work. Now, again, the writer of this book, most would agree, is in the latter part of his life, as he's looking back on life. But he says this. He says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I mean, I mean you get this impression. It's like watching a dog chase its tail. It, they work, and they work, and they work, and there is no meaning from that. I mean, think about how oftentimes when we meet someone new, the first question out of our mouth is, so what do you do? As if, as if what they do is more important than who they are. We, we often find our identity in work. We often find you know, our value, our security in what we do, how well we do it, the promotions we get, the accomplishments we have. Maybe, it, maybe it's not work for you. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your health. But, but we look at our accomplishments as some indicator that we've done it well and, and we've succeeded. And, and if we got a report card on this, we would, we would score high. But you can't draw meaning from what you accomplish. It's a chasing after the wind. You know, Michael Phelps, household name now, right? I think he last night won his 23rd gold medal. I mean, he is the quintessential Olympian. Right? No one has ever come close to that. He's accomplished more than anybody could have ever imagined. And yet, according to NBC Today in an interview with him, two years ago, he wanted to end his life. He wanted to take his life. He said it would be better if I was dead. He had a string of splintered relationships, number of DUIs. 
in all the accomplishments he had. He wanted to end it all. He didn't feel like he had purpose. He didn't have meaning. He, he checked in to receive help, and he picked up this book, A Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Many of you have heard that. And he promotes this same idea that seeking God's glory is the highest purpose in life. And that's what backed him away from the cliff. That's what pulled him back from the edge. People need more than work. Why do men quickly die after retirement? Because their lives have been built upon this task or performance. In other words, not only wisdom will not lead you to security and significance, neither will work. And you strive at it and labor at it. And we try to find meaning out of how well we've done. And Solomon or this preacher is saying, you're foolish if you do it. But, but another area that he sought meaning and purpose and value was wealth. That, that if I have enough money, if I have enough financial security, if I have a, enough financial strength, then I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. I can, I can take my leisure and rest. He says these words in chapter 2. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold. In fact, they said during Solomon's reign that silver was common. It was common. That he had more money, more wealth. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having that kind of wealth? But here's what he says at the end of his life. In chapter 5, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And this is also vanity. It's meaningless. I mean, how many of you gain a sense of well-being because of what is in your 401k or the investments you're in or the amount of money that you have or the amount of cash ready if you have a problem? Or how many of you would long for that? In other words, you may not have it, but you want it. And so you think, well, if I just had this job or this promotion or this race, if I could just have $15,000 right now, I could take care of all my problems. I could get out of debt. I could do whatever. How many of you long for that? You know, I worked as a CPA for a number of the most uptight, the most worried about life, that, that in, the, in the bullish market, everything was great. When it was a bear market, boy, things were down. They were really down. And, you know, we see the same kind of thing in the giving patterns of people. Um, we know, survey after survey, that those who make over $150,000 a year give, as a percentage of their income, less than those who make under $50,000 a year. Now, in absolute terms, they may give more, but as a percentage of their income, they give less. Why? You'd think more, give more. But no, more, more concerns, more worries. You know, William Carey said something interesting. He said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. You know, he looks at wisdom. That did not provide for me the meaning of life. He looked at careers. That did not provide meaning for me in life. He looked at the gaining of wealth and the securing of of financial independence, that did not produce meaning for him. He looked at one other area, and that is, well, a couple other areas. That is hedonism, pleasure, leisure, wine, laughter, fun, entertainment, women. He says this, and, and, and again, even if you're not a Christian here, you must appreciate the honesty of the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are so honest 
They tell it the way it is. He says this, I denied, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And it says in 1 Kings about his life that his table lacked nothing. So he'd be feeding 50 people at a time. And it would have practically every animal from the field on the table. It lacked nothing. I mean, Solomon, if this is Solomon, or using his life as an example, I mean, he had everything. I mean, total ease, total comfort. He had all kinds of women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, that means, that means if it was me, it wasn't, if it was me, I... I could have dinner with everyone, one a night. I wouldn't hit the first one for close to three years. That's how many women. Now, if you think that's heaven, men, let me tell you what he said. He said, I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved meaningless. I mean, how many of us, how much do we struggle trying to find the perfect body? I, I mean, the, the perfect sculptured body. Or, or how much effort do we put into being entertained? I remember reading this book by Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Just the passionate pursuit that we have of being entertained. You know, the millennial generation, that is those born after 84, about 20 to 35 is their age group, that just in terms of the survey done New York Times regarding the young, you know, the uneducated men of that group, those who have not had uh, much education, that their gaming time is from 10 hours to, to I think it was 29 or 30 hours a week. They love, they love the game. They're, they're usually under or unemployed. They're usually living with their parents. We, we love to be entertained. I, we, we think there's meaning and significance and ease and leisure in that. And he's saying there's not. No, another, let me just throw this one out. I won't be able to pull it apart. But, but popularity. That, that we, we think that if I could just be popular, then I'll have a place on this earth. Then I'll be meaningful. Then I'll have value. If I can just be popular among my peers. But listen to what he says in chapter 4. He says, The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or, may he, or, or, he have, uh, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and worked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with this successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In other words, we want him to be super popular, and then he becomes super popular, and we don't want him anymore. That's the way it works in this world. If you think popularity or the approval of your peers is significant, it's not there. So what's my point here? I'm not condemning these things per se. I'm not condemning pleasure. I'm not condemning work. I'm not condemning wealth. I'm not condemning wisdom. And you know what? Ecclesiastes doesn't either. Let me give you an example. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Seems contradictory? Well, listen to what he says following. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. When you see these things from the hand of God, then they are in right order. But when we see these things apart from God, 
when we look at what we have or what we wear or the houses we live in or the jobs that we have or the positions that we attain, when we look at these things, this is where life is going to be meaningless. This is where you will never find satisfaction. Now, I used to listen to the Rolling Stones. I loved Mick Jagger singing Satisfaction. Do you know the song? Probably, I don't know <laughs> many of you do. Maybe pulling back the curtain a little bit here. But let me, let me sing, I won't sing it for you. I was doing the air guitar last night when I was going through this, but he says this, he says, I can't get no satisfaction. Maybe a little double negative issue there, but I can't get no satisfaction. I try, I try, I try, and I can't get no satisfaction. When I'm driving my car and the man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. It's the way it is. Mick Jagger is speaking to us right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's natural, whether you're Christian or not. It's true. Truth is God's truth. And Jackson just gave it to us. I'm not sure he gave us anything else besides that, but he gave us that. But that, that, that's the problem, is these things will provide no satisfaction. You will never feel satisfied. The question that should come to your mind, though, is why? Why can't we get no satisfaction? Well, he tells us. As you read through this book, you're going to find out why. Number one, you'll get no satisfaction because you're not going to be remembered. He says it right there in verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrances of later things among those who come after. In other words, think about this for just a minute. Many of the technological advances we've seen in this life, do you even know the name of the person that did it? So the printing press. Who invented the printing press? Many of you may know that if you've looked at history. It was Gutenberg, 1440. Half the people, the majority of the people in the world pick up papers and books and they never know. Who did this that I can now do this? Or, or, or penicillin. Who invented that? Many of you know. It was back in... Uh, 37, I think it was. All the doctors probably know that. Fleming, 29. Nobody knows that. We go to the pharmacy, our kids are sick, we get a, a prescription of penicillin, nobody knows that. Or the blood bank by Charles Drew in the Second World War. Well, we just count on that now, but nobody knows. Or how about the bendable straw? The bendable straw. I know no one knows that. Friedman, 37. These are people that have done things for us that we profit by that we don't know. But what about your own life? Who will remember you? I don't even know the names. I know the names of my father's grandparents. I don't know the names of my mother's grandparents. Probably shouldn't admit that because my mother's here today. <laughs> but I didn't even know two of my gr grandparents. And the two I knew I didn't know very well. Who will know me? If I die today, in five years, who will remember? Maybe, maybe some of you, maybe many of you, my family will. 25 years from now, who will remember me? Well, my family, maybe just a few of you. 50 years from now, maybe my grandchildren. 75 years from now, no one. It's meaningless, is what he's saying. 
What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while, and then you vanish. Secondly, another reason that life is meaningless, toiling under the sun apart from God, is there's no real change. I mean, Solomon points to this constant repetition of change. Listen to what he says. He says, the sun rises and sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows round and round, ever returning to its course. The rivers flow to the sea, and yet it never fills. There's nothing new under the sun. Life is just reprints of past lives. Think about it. You say, oh, no, 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 Tom, things have changed. Have they really? They've changed technologically. So we, our clothes are dirty, we wash them in a bucket. Our clothes are dirty, we wash them in a machine. Uh, we're hungry, we cook over a fire. We're, we're hungry, we cook over a stove. What's the point? Our clothes are dirty and they get washed, and our, we're hungry and we get fed. Nothing really changes. There are not substantial changes to this life. That even the technology advances we make, it doesn't ultimately alter our lives. And this is why he's saying there is no real change. Life under the sun apart from God is meaningless. Another, another third reason why. Life makes no sense. Ultimately, the, the injustices. I mean, the young, healthy die. The old, unhealthy live. There's this, um, those who are over 100 years of age. They, they, um, I googled some of their diets. And um, one guy, George Francis, he lived to be 112. And uh, here's what his diet, they asked him, so, what accounts for your long life? In terms of diet, he said, I love this, um, pork, eggs, milk, and lard. Lard. <laughs> and he did give up cigars at the age of 75, so that's good. It, there, some life, it doesn't make sense. There's an illogic to it. There's an absolute illogic to life. The people, you know that. You're like, what does it matter sometimes? Does that not come out of your mouth? Listen to what Solomon says. In the meaninglessness of life, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth. There is a righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say, this is vanity. In the best of our world, in the best of our wisdom, we can't figure this out. You know, there's a family preparing uh, to travel to, to, to Japan to take the gospel there, right? They get in a car accident on the way to the final step of training. Their car explodes and they die. Mother, father, three young children. A guy, truck driver ran into the back of him. I think he may have been drinking. It, it's hard to understand life. It's hard to say, does it really matter? That's what, that's what life apart from God leads us to wonder. Or, and last, the last reason why life seems so meaningless is because it's short. It's short. He says the generations come and the generations go. Listen to what he compares us to. He says, surely in chapter 3, the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no knowledge, uh, humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. So our fate is the same of your pets. It's the same. You could live maybe 75, maybe 85, maybe if God gives grace, 95. Life is short. 
So, the wisdom of God lived under the sun, apart from God, will bring no satisfaction. It will leave you in frustration. It will leave you in despair. It will leave you in cynicism. Listen to what he says. He says, I hated life because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Do you remember the question that I asked at the very beginning in verse 3? What does it profit a man for the toil of which he toils under the sun? Here's what he says at the very last part of the monologue. In chapter 12, verse 8, the monologue finishes. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So he's saying our lives are sandcastles. Now, I think as a Christian or as a non-Christian, we have been prone to ask, does it really matter? I mean, think about your lives. You get up, you brush your teeth, you eat, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you brush your teeth, go to bed. You get up, you brush your teeth, you eat, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you brush your teeth, go to bed. There's a certain cycle to it. I think we've all, we've all gone through that. We know that. The reason Solomon is used as an example here is because this. He had every advantage. He had every opportunity. He had every benefit. And he finds the meaninglessness of life apart from God. Think about it for a minute. I know you, you, many of us think, well, if I just had that job, if I just had that husband, if I just had that house, if I just had, if I just had, Solomon is here to shout at us, it doesn't matter if you just had. It would be meaningless. This book is written for probably an older generation who have achieved much but found it wanting. It's written for us, for the wisdom that we would gain because despair waits for the person that continues to try to find meaning and purpose and value and security from these things in life. Despair waits for some, cynicism waits for others, and then nihilism waits for some. Nihilism is the skepticism that finally says nothing matters, it doesn't matter. It's the Nietzsche's, the Voltaire's, or Mark Twain. Listen to what Mark Twain wrote towards the end of his life. He says, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken. The joy of life is turned to aching grief. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from where, there were, where they were of no consequence a world which will lament them for a day and forever. That's the nihilist. That's the end result of living and toiling under the sun apart from God. Ernest Hemingway, many of you know the name and have books. He was a nihilist. He was an existentialist. He said the only meaning he could have is to deter death. So one night he got up from his wife in bed and went and grabbed his favorite hunting rifle and for him experienced the meaning of life by taking his own life. What foolery. That's the meaning of, that's nihilism. That is life lived under the sun apart from God. That's the end result. That's the full consequence. Well, I'm thankful for chapter 12. I'm thankful that this preacher has given us a clear warning. Thankful that, you know, just as dessert comes at the end and it's so sweet. Listen to these words that Joy read. Let me read them again for you. Now, when all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Some think this is Solomon coming back, a prodigal. He's wandered away. He's tried all the pleasures of the world, and now he's coming back to find God. Perhaps that's true. But what we know is this. Here's the end of the matter, is to fear God. Now, when I talk about fearing God, I don't talk about a fright or being afraid, like you would see a ghost or Voldemort. He would come up if you've read Lord of the Rings. It, it isn't that kind of fear. It, 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 it's, it's a reverence. It, it's a reverence for his holiness. Listen, Ecclesiastes doesn't have any language, or God doesn't speak in it at all but it speaks all about God. And it speaks to us about that he's a creator, that he has made all things according to his design, and that you and I are owned by God. He's created all things. He's caused all things into being. So when we fear God, we're fearing this power that we see around us. But not just that he's creator. Ecclesiastes tells us that he's a sovereign creator that he governs all the universes. He governs everything. He, he's not the divine watchmaker who winds everything up and it just kind of spins its course and then it dies when it runs out of steam. But he causes the grass to grow. He causes nations to flourish. He's a sovereign creator. But we also know that he's good. We know that he's sovereignly good. You, you heard that last week when I spoke about, about his mercy. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about the kindness and the mercy of God. Even the forgiveness of God. You know, I, from Psalm 130, verse 4, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. There's a fear and affectionate reverence in us over God being so powerful and yet being so gracious and so accessible to us with forgiveness. So fear God begins to move our lives into meaning to be in a relationship, to believe in God, a deep belief that he is running his universe, that he, is, that he is sovereignly attending to our needs. But not just that, to keep his commands. But you notice one follows the other. We don't keep his commands so that he will love us. Because he's loved us, we keep his commands. If faith precedes our obedience to his commands, that we want to walk in his commands. They're good for us because they lead us to meaning. When you walk out the Proverbs, when you walk out the lessons in Ecclesiastes, these things don't earn us a position of favor with God. They evidence our position of favor with God. They're leading us to a full life. Because he's the creator, we submit to his reign and his word. This is why Augustine, the church father of the fourth century, said, um, love God and do what you want. If you love him, you're going to follow him. If you love him, you're going to find his word to be true. But fearing God isn't just believing in his greatness and following his commands, but fearing God also is understanding his judgment. Notice what he says in that last verse. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing. We need judgment, don't we? If there was no judgment, then the nihilist would be right. Nothing would matter. The evil that isn't attended to in this life and nothing happened, then it wouldn't matter if I loved, if I hated, if I killed, if I healed, it wouldn't matter. But there is a judgment. And with the judgment brings balance. 
And it helps us to fear him rightly and to make sure to keep our wealth and our wisdom and our job. It puts them in right order. When we fear God first, then the other things get in their proper place. The last thing I would say about fearing God is this, that fearing God leads us to find satisfaction. Let me explain that. Only God can bring satisfaction. What is the source of our dissatisfaction? What is the source of our frustration in this life? What is the source of the meaninglessness? It's sin. You know, in the garden of God, there was no frustration. There was no meaninglessness. There was no struggling with the earth. There was no conflict within our relationships. Sin came, and with sin came a curse, and with a curse came frustration. So ask Ask Adam, how is farming in Genesis 2 and how is farming in Genesis 3? It was quite different. There was frustration and anger and bitterness, a working against the land, a working against people. And so frustration and the meaninglessness of this book is testimony to the reality of sin. Now, there is no New Testament quote of the book of Ecclesiastes, but there is an illusion, and the illusion is found in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Listen to what he says. For the creation was subjected to frustration. That's the same word as vanity and meaninglessness. He's saying the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So what he's saying here is that God has subjected all the creation to a sense of meaninglessness apart from him so that we would not be happy apart from him, that we wouldn't find meaning. But then what, what God did was he rescued us in Christ. And Christ subjected himself to the frustration by taking on flesh and living among us and bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt. He bore the curse that brought about our meaninglessness. And, and he took that, bearing our sins, dying for God, dying before God, bearing the wrath so that we might be children of liberty. So Jesus has entered our meaninglessness and he's made it now meaningful. So now for the Christian, our lives have meaning. They have value as we fear God, as we walk in his commandments, as we await that day of judgment. For the Christian, that is not a day for us to fear. That's a day for us to rejoice over that all the scales will be balanced. All the wrongs will be righted. It's a day to look forward to. It's a day that we strive for. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the resurrection chapter, he says, Brothers, sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, for you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain, vanity. It's not meaningless. The things you do for the glory of God will be remembered, will be known. There's even really a, a word for the non-Christian, and I would say to the Christian still, this is a great book to take a neighbor through that may not be a Christian. It's a great book to read with somebody. I mean, they will be able to understand the nature of the meaninglessness. This is a connection point that we speak with, that I always seek to speak with a non-Christian to get to the point of meaninglessness, to introduce transcendence to them. 
But even if you're not a Christian here, I, I think you've appreciated the honesty of what life is like. It's not painting a flowery scene here. And I can appreciate, for if you're not Christian, you know the tension that exists in your soul. Because in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that he has set eternity in the heart of man. So you have, and I want to explain the tension, you have a tension of, yeah, there's something beyond, and yet everything I strive for now is not satisfying me. That tension is a gift of God, that you would look to Christ who would bear your frustration and meaninglessness, that you might find God and enjoy God in full measure. So let's take a minute right now and just ask God perhaps for forgiveness over the the false idols and loves we've pursued. Let's maybe ask God to reveal himself in greater measure. We just want to take these few moments of silence and, and maybe confess to God or plead with God or thank God. And then an elder will close us in just a minute.